0: The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Now, here's Pastor Chris Rollins. We are in week five of our summer reading sermon series, and the book that we're using today uh, is a great book. It's called Sacred Marriage uh, by Gary Thomas. And now, uh, if, you, if you've read the book or if you will read the book, Gary begins by explaining uh, that this is not your typical book on marriage, you know, this is not your five steps to a better marriage or six uh, steps to a more exciting love life or anything like that. Uh, The author actually writes this. He says, this is a book that looks at how we can use the challenges, joys, and struggles and celebrations of marriage to draw, draw us closer to God and to grow in Christian character. What if God designed marriage to make us more holy? Than to make us happy. So, if you haven't read the book, I would would highly recommend it. It is a a, a great book on marriage. So, I guess I could begin this morning by saying uh, this is not going to be your typical sermon on marriage either. Uh, What I want to do today is kind of go all the way back to the beginning, if you will, and, and lay a very strong foundation today for what the Bible teaches is the purpose of marriage. And talk about marriage uh, from the creator's perspective. Now, first of all, let me begin by saying, and and I usually do this when we do like a relationship series or a series or a message specifically on marriage. I I realize that there are all kinds of people here today. All different types of people in different uh, circumstances. Some of you are happily married, while others of you are not. Married or happy, (laughs) okay? Um, Some of you are engaged, or dating, you know, or wish you were or, you know, or can't wait to be married while others, you, others of you are married and and wish that you were not. Uh, some of you have been through a divorce and you're wondering now, you know, why you didn't check the outline before you got here this morning and, uh, you know, wish that you weren't, uh, weren't here. Uh, others of you have lost a spouse and there are days when you're not sure that you'll recover. So, let me just make this blanket statement, whatever your situation is, I honestly believe that God has something important to say to all of us today, okay so uh, what we're going to ha- what 's going to happen today is i 'm going to open the Bible and uh, we 're going to look at marriage as it was meant to be. Now I say marriage as it was meant to be for a reason because God's purpose and design for marriage is not automatically achieved or experienced simply because a couple stand before each other and say, I do. Would you agree with that? You know, that just because you're married, that doesn't necessarily mean that we live and experience God's intention for marriage. So here's what's going to happen. Let's, let's begin by going all the way back to the very, very beginning, the start of relationships, back to the very first couple, Adam and Eve, and see what God did intend for marriage uh, from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to kind of hang out there a little bit uh, together today. And there are three things about that relationship in the very beginning that I want you to see today. Number one, if you're taking notes, uh, their relationship was purposeful. It was purposeful. Now, in Genesis 2.18, I want you to notice that one of the purposes that God has for marriage is intimacy. Intimacy. You might write that down off to the side somewhere. Intimacy. Look at verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, I ran across an interesting statistic. Did you know that single men, single men do not live as long as married men? That's kind of interesting. In fact, one survey in particular was taken of four categories of people, okay? Four categories. Married and unmarried men and married and unmarried women to see which, you know, in general, statistically, which category was the happiest, okay? Now, statistically speaking, in general, they discovered that the happiest category were the married men, Are you you shocked by that? I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Married men, happiest people on the planet. There you go. Um, While the unhappiest, fourth on the list, were unmarried men. Okay, so married men, the happiest. Unmarried men, the least happy. Okay, strangely though, the second happiest group, We're unmarried women, so I I really don't know what that says about us today or you or your marriage, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Some of you know exactly why. Anyway, okay, but back to verse 18. It says, it's not good for man to be alone, and we've used that verse a lot. We've talked about that a lot as far as we believe the Bible teaches that we were created for community. We were created for relationships, for intimacy, and so God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we kind of miss a little bit of this in Hebrew, but the idea there, as far as suitable, is is someone who perfectly complements him. Now, that's a great statement there already uh, about God's purpose for marriage. It's got nothing to do with, you know, this is not about, nothing to do with man being, you know, superior to the woman or woman being better than man. No, it has nothing to do with any of that. Uh, In fact, all it's really saying is that one perfectly complements the other. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So Adam needed a companion. Someone designed specifically suited for him. And so you kind of expect the next verse to say, so God created Eve. But it doesn't. In verses 19 and 20, in fact, God brings all these animals, you know, parading by, and Adam gets to name them all, which he does. But still it says, for Adam, and this is the very end of verse 20, uh, for Adam, no suitable helper was found, no perfect complement, no one to, you know, that suited him. And so that then sets up verses 21 through 23. Look at this. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping... He took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that passage you know, many, many times. But don't miss something. In fact, again, we miss a little little bit of this in English. But there's there's actually a word play here uh, in Hebrew involving the words man and woman. And and this is perfectly illustrated, the fact that, that they were specifically made for each other. Okay, The word man is used twice in this verse, but they're actually different Hebrew words. The first part of the verse where it says the man said... That's the Hebrew word for Adam. But then at the very end of the verse, Adam changes to the Hebrew word ish. Okay, ish. When the woman's brought to him. Now, what's interesting about that, that, that change, is that Eve is actually in Hebrew called Isha. So there's ish and Isha because she's taken out of Ish. So what Adam is saying here is, again, follow this. This is my counterpart. This is my companion. You know, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We could say that uh, Isha has her origins in Ish. And then in verse 24, this is the, the best picture of this special relationship. Verse 24. For this reason, a man, Ish, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, Isha, and they will become one flesh. Again, intimacy, companionship. Now, that description right there really forms the foundation for the Bible's teaching, the Bible's understanding of of marriage, of family. You know, a lot of confusion today out there uh, as far as, you know, what constitutes marriage and family. But there is no confusion in Scripture. In fact, listen to me. That passage right there gets quoted Five other times in the Bible. So obviously this is extremely important. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in, in reference to marriage. Now, why, Pastor Chris, is that so important? Well, because so many people today want you to believe that this idea of, you know, the monogamous two-parent husband-wife family is an American invention of you know, the 1950s you know, from American television or something. That's crazy. Listen, it actually, it actually goes a little bit further than that. It goes back a little bit further, okay? It goes all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve and God's declaration that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to who? His wife, and they will become one flesh. Listen to me. That is what constitutes marriage. According to the Creator. Okay? That is the ideal. That is the standard. Now, that is not polygamy. That's not adultery. That's not homosexual cohabitation. It's not promiscuity. It's not people living together outside of the marriage bond. It's not serial marriage. Okay? Okay? This is God's ideal, God's standard for marriage. You ready? One man, one woman for a lifetime. Period. That's his standard. You know, from from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. You know, there's there's never a doubt, never a question. You got questions? Go to the roadmap. Go Go to the standard. In fact, listen to this. In Matthew 19... When some Pharisees came along and tried to trap Jesus with this controversial question about marriage and divorce, do you remember what he said? Do you remember the first four words out of Jesus' mouth, how he responded to them? This is what he said. Have you not read? Have you not read? Read what? What's he talking about? Do you know? Scripture. The scriptures. More specifically, this particular scripture. In fact, he takes them all the way back to the beginning, When the God of the universe, the creator, made them male and female and said, Have you not read that from the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one, one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, Separate. So, who joins people together in marriage? God does. God does. And according to Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, if you want to understand marriage, listen, you don't go to culture, you don't go to whatever the wor- world is now deeming acceptable you go back to the author of the universe, back to the creator. When the creator made them male and female, one man, one woman for a lifetime. Now, I don't say all that to heap guilt or shame on anybody. The reality is, guess what? We're all sinners in need of a savior. And we all fall short. But let there be no confusion as to what the Bible teaches is Marriage. So, the first marriage, it was purposeful. It was created for intimacy. Where a man beautifully compliments a wife, and a wife beautifully compliments, you know, they compliment one another. But along with that being purposeful, number two, it was intended to be transparent. By the way, it feels like there's a a pin could drop in here, and everybody would be like, oh my gosh, he's talking about marriage today. Oh, okay. Number two, it was transparent. Transparent. It was transparent. Let's go a little bit, a little bit deeper with this. Genesis 2.25, this is one of my favorite verses. The man and his wife are both what? Naked. I got that plastered right on our refrigerator wall. Right on right our refrigerator. Janet, right there. Bam, naked. You know, naked day. You know, y'all have naked day at your house? I don't know. Anyway, okay. What a powerful, beautiful, God-ordained scripture. Right there. anyway. But, but, Janet's quick to remind me, nakedness there that's being described is not just skin to skin, but soul to soul. Okay? You see, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were naked inside and out. They were completely open and transparent with each other. And they felt no shame. But then, sin entered into the world, into their relationship, and then everything changed. You know the story Uh, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and Genesis 3, 7 tells us this, the eyes of both of them were opened, and now they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Why? Well, sin made them self-conscious. You know, sin makes you want to hide. Sin brings inhibitions and shame. Sin separates us from God, alienates us from God, and it also Alienates us from one another. Now, Adam and Eve right here exhibited the two classic responses from sin uh, that you see today, that that we still to this day do, and that's hiding and blaming. Hiding and blaming. First of all, when we sin, we want to hide, right? We hide from God, we, we hide from each other. Uh, In relationships, we hide from other people. Uh, And then, secondly, when confronted with our sin, we do exactly what they do. We're quick quick to blame. You know, we blame God. We blame each other. We, We will blame anything or anyone except for ourselves. You see, there is a huge, huge difference between getting caught and then humbly confessing and coming clean on your own. There's a difference between getting caught and then repentance, humble confession. You know, God asked Adam, Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what did Adam do? He immediately tried to throw Eve under the bus and God under the bus. Listen to his statement. He says, Lord, it was the woman you gave me. You know, she's the one who gave me the fruit, it's her fault, and, and you're the one who gave her to me. And then when God asked Eve what she had done, she blames the snake, right? It was the serpent's fault. He deceived me. And, and what's interesting, from that point on in history, the man has been blaming the wife and the wife has been calling her husband a snake, right? It's the exact, exact same thing, nothing changes. Listen to me. As your relationship grows, it's got to produce an increasing intimacy and transparency. Over time, that the, the more transparent, the more honest, the more uninhibited you should become with your spouse. You, you cannot be close to somebody. Listen to this. You cannot be close to somebody from whom you're keeping a lot of secrets. You can't be close to somebody if you're keeping secrets from them. Relational intimacy thrives on two things truth and transparency. Truth and transparency. Rick Warren's got a sermon uh, entitled The Greatest Risk You'll Ever Take. And in it, he says it's the risk of being totally honest with someone, specifically your spouse. And the reason that's such a risk is because one of our oldest problems as human beings is this fear of rejection. How many of you have avoided, you know, transparency because you're afraid of where it might lead and what might happen? Well, you know, if they really knew me, you know, they won't love me. They won't accept me. Ephesians 4.15 says this, Instead, we will hold to the truth in love, becoming more and more in every way like Jesus, like Christ, who's the head of, this, of his body, the church. So applied to marriage and relationships, what he's talking about there is that as we become more and more like Jesus, especially in the context of speaking the truth to one another in love, the closer you become to each other. Okay, you, you, can't, you can't miss that connection. You can't have one without the other. Now, obviously, the key to this is, you ready for this? actually speaking to each other, okay? Communication. Your transparency with your spouse will never be any deeper than your willingness to talk and to genuinely listen to one another. And for some of you, you know, the greatest hindrance to that, you just don't make time for each other, period. You know, you've stopped dating one another. You've stopped, you know, just spending time together. Your job's a priority, your kids have become a priority, but your relationship is no longer a priority. Counselors and therapists are quick to point out that the vast majority of problems that, that people encounter in marriage today ultimately stems from a breakdown in communication. You know, a failure to communicate. You know, it reminds me of the story of the old uh, uh, couple uh, who were sitting beside a fireplace, and, you know, the husband very lovingly looks over at his wife in great warmth in his his heart and in his voice, he says, honey, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. Now, his wife's hearing wasn't exactly the best, so she said, what? And so he repeated himself a little bit louder this time. He said, after 50 years, I found you to be tried and true. And she scowls back at him and says, well, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. So, a breakdown in communication, okay? Listen, transparency, purpose of marriage. According to God, one man, one woman for a lifetime who perfectly complement one another and who share intimacy. Intimacy, both, not just physically, but relationally, spiritually, and they are transparent. You cannot have transparency without truth, without communication. Final thing I want you to see about Adam and Eve's relationship. Number three, this is important. It was God-centered. It was God-centered. You know, think about it. Before the fall, before sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed this wonderful, unhindered access and fellowship with God. And in turn, that spilled over into their relationship with each other. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have seen this. This next slide, Uh, it's on your... uh, Uh, your outline on the back, uh, you know, some people call it the golden triangle uh, of marriage. And the the premise is very simple. You know, I I don't know how many times I've sat down with uh, young couples in premarital counseling, or even just in counseling in general, and uh, drawn this little triangle, you know. And the idea is that, you know, the husband is on one side, the wife is on the other side, and as each one of them, okay, this is the key, as each one of them grow in their relationship individually with God, as they you know, grow in their faith, as they begin to exude and exhibit uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, and they grow in intimacy with God, each one of them, as they do that, what happens with their relationship with each other? What happens to them? They become what? Closer to each other, right? You can see that, right? As they become closer to God, they get closer uh, to each other. In fact, a lot of times what I see in marriage, what creates a lot of friction, is that you know, one person is moving in in their relationship with God. The other person maybe is not. Maybe even going in the other direction and then that creates what? Friction, right? But you know what can happen? You don't have to just go in the other direction. You can have one person just being stagnant, not moving, and the other person growing, and that's going to create friction as well. But what where this is so beautiful and awesome is when both people are growing in their walk toward God, they grow closer to each other. This is exactly what Peter was getting at here in 1 Peter 3, 7, where he said, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, I know some of you want to highlight the idea that, oh, here's, you know, the Apostle Peter, he's saying women are weaker, they're less than. No, actually, this is a tremendous statement of great value. You kind of miss it, though, because you focus on, you know, what you think there is the weaker vessel, being weaker physically or less value. What he's actually talking about there, especially if you key in, show honor to her as the weaker vessel, it could be better translated, the more valuable one, okay? Because what he's, he's describing it this way, not in the sense of, you know, being weaker physically or weaker, you know, less than. What he's saying is that more valuable, more precious. It'd be like, okay, guys, basically what Peter is saying is you're like a Yeti tumbler, okay? You're, you're just a big old tumbling mound of plastic and she's a piece of fine china, okay? So show honor to her as the more valuable one. Not the yet Weaker and more, more delicate in the sense of you esteem her. Now, listen to this, though. Since... They are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your what? Your prayers, your prayer life will not be hindered. Man, that's really interesting. That's a pretty strong statement. He's basically saying there is a connection between your relationship with God and your relationship with each other. You know, you you want God to, to listen to you? You better be, you know, loving your spouse. Now listen to me, but... If you're not careful, here's what can happen. Because, you know, obviously, you know, in this triangle, the most important person in the triangle is God, okay? But what can happen in a relationship sometimes is that you'll look to your spouse, you'll look to your husband, you'll look to your wife to give you things that ultimately Only God can give you. You'll look to your spouse's love or your spouse's respect or your spouse's affirmation to give you meaning in life, to fix you, to give you a sense of value. In other words, you'll be looking for your spouse. You'll be looking to another human being to save you, to make everything right in your life, to fix you. No human relationship can bear that kind of weight. No human relationship can bear the weight of that kind of expectation. You know what's going to happen? You will crush that person. You will crush your marriage with those kinds of expectations because nobody other than Jesus can bear the weight of the expectations and the hope of ultimate joy. That comes from your relationship with God. And so you might push back and you say, well, Pastor Chris, are you telling me that I shouldn't love my my spouse as much? No, stupid, okay, no. In fact, C.S. Lewis perfectly explained this one time by making the point that you can never love any human being too much. Now, you might love them too much in proportion to your love for God, but he was careful to point out that it's our smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for another person that creates this unhealthy balance. You're not loving God like you should. What's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do you see what he's saying? Again, while our relationships you know, are perfectly connected, they're not equal. Okay? Your deepest needs have got to be fulfilled through Christ. Not another person. Psalm 143.6 says, I spread out my hands to you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. The idea is that only God ultimately can quench your soul. And so if you're looking for in, in, in someone else, if you're looking for someone else to meet in you those deepest needs that you have that only God can meet, you know what's going to happen? You, both of you are going to become vacuums for all kinds of unmet expectations and problems. So how do you avoid that? How do you live a God-centered life? Well, I think it's really cool that the Bible begins in, in Genesis with a marriage. One man, one woman for a lifetime. But then when you get to the end in Revelation, we discover that it all ends with a marriage as well. The wedding supper of the Lamb. The returning Savior. And then in between, God says over and over and over again, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, I am the bridegroom, and, and you, my people, you are my bride. Same thing in Ephesians 5. Paul goes into great detail about this relationship between husbands and wives. But then he says, what I'm really talking about here is Jesus and the church. So when he says that, the, that, that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride, you know what he's doing? He's reminding you of something, he's given you his heart. He's given you his heart. Now think about that. You know, a man doesn't ask a woman to marry him until he has given her his heart, and she doesn't respond with a yes until, unless she has given away her heart. And now their hearts are bound together with one another. And so this is God's way of saying, I've given you my heart. You know, Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your what? Your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Let me ask you, who have you, who have you given your heart to? You know, again, what, what does this mean? Guard your heart. You know, when our, when our daughter Lydia was much younger, uh, she was talking to a boy, and we could see kind of what was going on here a little bit. And, and uh, Janet, my wife, said, Lydia, be careful. You haven't given away your heart yet, have you? And uh, Lydia responded, don't worry, Mommy, I haven't. It's in a lockbox underneath daddy's pillow, and, um, which is where every little girl's heart should stay until they're about 35. So anyway, um, but think about it for a second. You gotta, don't miss this today. You know, why did God come to earth in the form of his son, Jesus? John 1.11 tells us, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to bring us back to Himself. He came for His bride to bring her home. But you know what? We rejected Him. We nailed Him to a cross. You know, some of you think, you know, you're in a bad marriage at times. You, like, it feels like my spouse is crucifying me. Well, in God's case, it actually happened when He was on the cross, looking down, experiencing what. It would take to love us to the very end. Guess what? He stayed. I mean, this is the ultimate expression of love. Here is our, our Savior spouse who has no illusions whatsoever at whatsoever what's at stake. I mean, He doesn't expect us to be perfect. In fact, He knows we're not perfect. He loves us not because we're lovely or beautiful. No. He loves us to make us lovely. He loves us for our sakes, not for his. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He is the perfect spouse, the perfect helper. Helper. Jeremiah 31, three says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. He has, hasn't he? Now here's my point. When you know that, and you experience it deep in your soul that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love, that he, he's, he draws you with loving kindness and he sticks with you to the end. And he loves you not because you're lovely or good, but he loves you to make you lovely and to make you beautiful. Then you have everything you need for two main reasons. Number one, listen to me, this is important. That fact right there, the understanding that, knowing it, believing it, provides the patience that you are going to need in your own marriage and relationships. Listen, in order to stick with a marriage, in order to hang in there, you've got to over and over and over again look at that other person, look at your spouse, and acknowledge, yes, you've wronged me, yes, you've hurt me, but I hurt my great spouse, Jesus. I've wronged him. And he keeps covering me and forgiving me. And so I'm loved enough by him that I have the ability, not in and of myself, but but through his power, I can offer the same thing to other people. That is the only way you're going to have patience in any relationship. Now here's the thing. It also frees you from expecting that other person to fix you, to save you, to meet all your needs, to make everything right in in this life. Because Jesus is the only one who can save you. He is the only one who can fulfill you. He is the only one who can meet all of your needs. And again, this is so beautiful. The Bible begins with the wedding, and and this wedding's original purpose was this, this intimacy. It was to fill the world with the children of God. But guess what? It failed. Because the husband in that marriage failed to step up and help his wife and she failed and and sin entered the picture and ever since, we have all fallen short of God's standard of one man, one woman for a lifetime of truth and transparency and God being right at the center. But here's the good news. At the end of time, there is going to be another wedding. Revelation says it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And its purpose is to fill the kingdom of God with the children of God. And it will succeed where the first marriage failed. Do you know why? Because where the first husband failed, the second husband will not The true Adam, the true Adam in scripture is Jesus and he will never, he has never and he never will let his bride down. And on that day, on that day, you and I will all be presented to the groom pure, spotless, without blemish. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you've done. But because of Jesus and what he accomplished for you and for me on the cross. Don't you see? Marriage is a high and holy thing. And somehow today in this world, we have lessened it. We all fall short. But a Savior has been provided. Will you come to him? I promise if you do, if you're in a relationship it will improve it you know if i could if i could sell you an insurance policy today for your marriage it would be both of you as husband and wife growing closer and closer to your relationship to god one day there's going to be another wedding are you ready you've been invited in fact someone has given you his heart have you given him yours? You can today. What are you waiting on? You've been listening to a message from Pastor Chris Rollins of Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.